Father, indeed, it is good for your people to be in the house of the Lord, to celebrate your goodness to us. Your great kindness is expressed to us personally in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our worship would be acceptable to you this morning. We come as children again in need of a father. And we cry out to you, Father, forgive us of our sins. For we have sinned again this week. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we come this morning as a new creation, boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel, not only here together corporately, but we pray, Father, when we leave this church building today and we go out into the community, that we will boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray this morning that you would abide in our midst. I pray, Father, for the preaching of the word this hour, that truth would penetrate hearts this morning. We need to hear truth today, and I pray that it will make a difference. Don't just stir us this morning, Father, but change us by the preaching of truth. Now, Father, this is a special Sunday for the people of grace where we monthly pull aside and center around this table that symbolizes so much of who we are. Father, it is the very heartbeat of our, our thanksgiving, that sins are forgiven. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I would pray this morning for people in our family that have needs. There are those who grieve this morning after the loss of loved ones. I pray for Glenn Strawn and his family. And having buried his father yesterday morning, we pray, Lord, that you will strengthen that family and encourage them. And Father, after they have suffered a little while, would you raise them up and make them strong firm and steadfast. I would pray for those who are facing surgery tomorrow. There are several this week, and we pray especially for the ones that will go in early in the morning. I pray that you will guide the surgeon's hands and bring healing to their body. And Father, we thank you that you care for us in all things, things that often seem trivial to us. You are intimately concerned about, for your son suffered the very things that we experience in our life today. We're thankful for that. So, Father, we pray for um, where human hands have left off, Lord, this week. We pray that you will take up and take care and bring healing and encouragement to people. Father, thank you for the giving of your people. I, for one, especially the Hall household, am thankful that people in this church are faithfully giving of their tithes and offerings so that the ministry of this church can continue. I pray, Father, that you'll receive the offerings this morning as just a, a part, a small part of our gratitude for what you have done for us. For we understand that all things that we have come from you. So we give joyfully and we give liberally this morning with thanksgiving. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Have your Bibles turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, our text, is, will, our text will begin in verse 17. Early this morning, our staff prayer, someone mentioned concerning the text this morning that I sure like the book of Ephesians. And so I reminded um, our staff this morning that the reason I've been preaching out of Ephesians when Jimmy's gone is because last summer in our planning, Jimmy had decided to move into the book of Acts and study the book of Acts for several months. And so... I chose to, uh, to study Ephesians to parallel our study in the book of Acts. So in my uh, new Sunday school class that I started in September, I started teaching through the book of Ephesians. And then 
would bring Ephesians in here on Sunday morning. You see, as the book of Acts, uh, as probably you, you well know, is a historical narrative of the first century church. You have the ministries of Peter and then the ministries of the Apostle Paul. And so when you move over to the epistles, what you have, instead of a macro view uh, in the epistles, you have more of a micro look at what's happening in the early church. And so that's why we're in Ephesians, at least why, I, why I'm preaching in Ephesians uh, when I can on Sunday morning. So our text is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And before I read the text, let me put a little bit of things into context because we're jumping right here in the middle of this book. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I drive around town and I'm always interested in reading bumper stickers. I've been doing that for years. In fact, I come to uh, intersections and if I can't see the fine print, I'll inch up a little bit closer. And sometimes I'm embarrassed by what I read, but uh, it's interesting to me to tell a lot about a person by uh, what they put on their bumpers. And um, I think it was Friday morning I was driving downtown. I saw a new one. I hadn't seen this one before. It said, I'd rather be driving a Titleist. <laughs> you saw the car the guy was driving. You'd rather be driving a Titleist, too. But, uh, and then there's the Christian bumper stickers. And, you know, these uh, always scare me a bit because I'm always afraid, you know, what kind of message we're trying to proclaim with our stick, uh, bumper, Christian bumper stickers. And, you know, there's one that's been around for a long time. I haven't seen this one in a while, but it says, honk if you love Jesus. You've seen that one? I caution you, though, you may honk at the wrong time. You may not get a Christian response. But And then there's one that's been around forever, and I continue to see this one. It says, it says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, guys, that is a true statement. We are, we're not perfect people, and thank the Lord that we are forgiven. But, guys, I hope that's not the summation of your view of, of the life of a Christian, because it's oh so inadequate. I think the Apostle Paul would turn over in his grave if we thought that's how we viewed the Christian life. We're not perfect. We're just forgiven people. Because, guys, I believe the Apostle Paul understood that we're not just forgiven. We are that. But we are a new creation. In fact, if you take the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul makes this grand case. It's so much otherwise, guys. We're not just forgiven. There's so much other things that have gone on in the Christian conversion. Look with me in chapter 1, just just a second as we review some of the things. Chapter 1, verse 3. You think Paul thought we were just forgiven? Read this. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us. Uh, Guys, here we get this... Great lesson that in eternity past that God put Christ and us together in his mind. In verse 5, He in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 8, Paul says that he's lavished on us all wisdom and understanding. In verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Verse 10, this mystery of his will will be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ Jesus. You get the feel, guys, that we're a part of something that's far bigger than we are as individuals. Verse 12, he says, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. 
Verse 14, he tells us that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glorious grace. And so what Paul has done here, and he does this in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he builds this grand case that, guys, we're a new creation in Jesus Christ. So what we have here in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the first major division in this epistle. The last three chapters move from this great theological treatise of our identity in Jesus Christ to the more practical implications of this new life in Christ. Now, before Paul changes, now look with me in chapter 4. Before Paul changes in chapter 4 to the more practical implications of the Christian life, he bridges these two chapters in chapters 3, verses 20 and 21. These two verses... This great doxology becomes the bridge text between the two halves of Ephesians. And some have called this this great crescendo and this theological masterpiece. Paul brings us to the very peaks of this great truth, the great doctrine he's teaching us. And he says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And then we come to chapter four. Now, as he shifts gears, Paul gives us this mandate in chapter four, verse one, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge and your text may say, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then, guys, this leads us, uh, sets the stage for the text that we uh, have this morning, chapter 4, verse 17. So with this in mind, live a li- or I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We come to verse 17, and Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard him, heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to be put and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And may the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. It was almost 26 years ago on a February afternoon that I had just completed The first 12 hours of my first 24-hour shift as a firefighter. And guys, for a 21-year-old young man, this was a whole new experience for me. I walked into an entirely new world. I had two challenges facing me as a young man. One was the challenge to earn the brotherhood. You know, if you walk into a firehouse at 21 years of age and you're the new guy on the block, you're the rookie, the runt. You've got to prove yourself. You just don't automatically get accepted. And I knew the challenge before me was to earn the trust and respect of my fellow firefighters. Number one, I had to earn the brotherhood. 
The other challenge facing me was the challenge of the test. For the first time in my life, I was about to test the Christian faith. Was this thing really real and would it stand the test of the real world? So that evening after we finished our evening meal together and the dishes were cleaned and put up and the kitchen was cleaned. And I walked out into the apparatus room of the firehouse and I was standing looking out the side windows of this fire station And one of the guys followed me outside and he stood beside me and he said this, well, I understand you're a Christian. So I want to encourage you just to relax, he said, because in six or eight months you'll be talking like the rest of us. In fact, he said cursing like the rest of us. Guys, the Lord used the comments of that young man who would eventually become a friend of mine. He used the comments of that guy to firm up with it in my life two things. Number one. I was determined to be the best firefighter I could possibly be. And number two, I was determined to live a life worthy of the calling. I tell you that story, guys, because of this point. There's more at stake in life for the Christian than self-worth. There's more at stake in our lives than friendships. There's more at stake here in the Christian life than earning the brotherhood. There's even more at stake in the Christian life than simply success in a career. For the scriptures tell us that we are to live in this world, but not become a part of it. And to the churches of Asia Minor, Paul reminds us, you must no longer live as the Gentiles. And your text may say the ungodly live. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul did not see himself as simply just forgiven. In fact, I would argue with you that Paul believed that holiness, holiness of life, righteous living should be inevitable for all of us in view of what has happened to us in regeneration. Conversely, if you're one out there who finds yourself envying the people who still follow the ways of this world, and that's the terminology that Paul uses in in Ephesians. If If you're one of those who still yearn to follow the ways of this world, then there may be something radically wrong with your Christian life. So we come to this text, verse 17, and Paul, again, is kind of shifting gears. He spent a little bit of time in chapter 4 speaking of the challenge for us as the Christian church to walk in unity and to enjoy and benefit from this unity in the midst of diversity. And we come to verse 17, and the theme changes for us. We are to walk in purity or walk as children of light. Guys, Paul here is about to use some very graphic, illustrated uh, terminology here to, to teach us of what this former way of life used to be like. And Paul is reminding us, guys, here in verse 17, 18, and 19 of what the old nature was like. But what we had been saved from brought out of, and he uses these very graphic terms. The first thing he says in verse 17 He says that you should no longer live as the Gentiles do. You see this phrase, in the futility of their thinking. Last Sunday, when I was studying the book of Acts, we had come to the church at Antioch. And we were given a little bit of context about this pagan city there on the northern shores of the the Great Sea, which is now in modern day the, the Mediterranean Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. And there, the city of Antioch was a coastal city, if you remember Last Sunday's sermon. Well, if you take a boat and hug the coastline of the uh, the Mediterranean Sea and you go west along the coastline and then you pass between the Isle of Crete 
and turn north, hugging the coastline. You'll come into the Aegean Sea. And just a few miles north, going north on the Aegean Sea on the coastline, you'll come to the port city of the city of Ephesus. It, too, was a pagan city, thoroughly bathed in the Greek culture. You may remember that Ephesus was the center of the pagan worship of the goddess Diana. In fact, much of the economy of the city of Ephesus centered around the worship of this pagan god. You might remember that Paul gets in trouble here in the city of Ephesus. He's making great strides as he preaching the gospel. People are coming to know Jesus Christ, these pagan Gentiles. And so the, the worship of the goddess Diana is suffering. And so some of the, some of the craftsmen in the city, their, their work is suffering because their work centered around the, the making of the silver artifacts that resembled or symbolizes the goddess Diana. And so Paul gets into trouble here in this pagan city. But my point is, guys, that in this city, thoroughly bathed in the pagan culture and the pagan mindset, Paul makes this statement that they live in the futility of their thinking. Now guys, someone has said that the Roman armies conquered Alexander's armies. But it was the Greek culture that conquered Rome. And here was the predominant worldview of Paul's days. It went something like this. The best of man was his mind. The Greeks believed, guys, that the mind was divine and it was through the mind or the intellect that we are linked upward to God. And so the body or the flesh, according to the Greeks, was earthly and it draws us downward. And so the goal of this world in life view was to escape from the earthly or to escape from the flesh, to enjoy the spiritual or the mind. You might remember in Acts 17, Paul is in the city of Athens and he's there in the Areopagus and he's debating or he's teaching the gospel is what he's doing there in this center of learning there in that great Greek city. And Paul comes to this point in his presentation where he argues the resurrection of the body. You might remember in Acts 17 that some of the people in the crowds begin to sneer Paul. The resurrection of the body. Why would we want the body to be resurrected? It represents the earth or that which is evil. And so to the Gentile mind, philosophy in and of itself becomes the savior of mankind. Now here's the irony. I don't know if you see it or not. But the Greeks thought that the mind was the solution to all of men's problems. But Paul saw it as one of the chief problems of man's dilemma. He calls it the futility of their thinking. That they are hopelessly confused in their thinking. During my 12 years as a firefighter, I made several fire calls that involved fatalities. And it was always a difficult thing. And I think one of the, one of the most tragic scenes I was ever a part of happened in the early hours of one morning in a residential fire. And guys, you, I think you know that most fire fatalities occur from midnight to 6 a.m. And our engine company made a, a, a residential fire in the wee hours of one morning. When we got on the scene... There was fire blowing out of one end of the house around what we could see as the, the bedroom areas of this house. And fire was blowing out of those windows. And, and that in and of itself was a good sign for us because we knew that the house was venting well. And so we could make an interior attack through the front door and try to get close to the seat of the fire. So that's what we did. We stretched our, our lines in through the front door and our crew 
we donned our air mask and we made our way in through the living areas of this house and turned down what we thought would be the hallway leading to the bedroom section. We were knocking down this fire as we went. And we came to what we thought would be the end of the hallway where we could get to this main bedroom where the fire originated. And when we got down to the end of the hallway, the, my helmet hit against something hard out in the hallway. And at first, I thought it was a piece of furniture blocking our way. But I tried to move it. We couldn't move it. And so... We were already at this, the door of this bedroom, so we just stuck our nozzle in the bedroom and knocked down the remaining fire. And after things cooled off and we were able to set up our heavy lights and do our post-fire work, what we discovered was out in that hallway that our, my helmet had hit was the door and the door frame of this bedroom. It had been knocked down and was leaning halfway out in the hall, and the top of it was resting against the, uh, the opposing wall in the hallway. And guys, what we discovered at the foot of that door inside the bedroom was the body of a middle-aged woman. And as the investigators investigated this fire, the, the conclusion that we came to was this. That that lady had awakened during the night in that bedroom where the fire had originated. And, and possibly out of total panic and confusion, she had gone to the bedroom door, which apparently had been closed. And instead of turning the knob and pulling it inside, as n- most bedroom doors do... She began to pound on that door in her panic-stricken state, convinced that that was the only way to escape that bedroom. And she literally pounded with all of her weight on that door until she had knocked that door and part of the door jam out in the hallway. It was a horrible sight to look at. And guys, I'm telling you, the only way of escape for that lady... The only hope she had that night had some firefighter gotten there in time and rescued her. Otherwise, she was doomed to her own demise because she was hopelessly confused. And I think Paul, in these very graphic terms, is illustrating for us the condition of the fallen man. Those who are captured, still captive, held captive in the ways of this world. And there are those, ladies and gentlemen who surround us every day in life, who inch closer to eternity every day, convinced that they are on the right path. And Paul says they're not because they're, they're live, they live in the futility of their thinking. They are hopelessly confused. You might remember that's why Paul says to Timothy that there are people in this world, like the Greeks of his days, who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Then he says next in uh, verse 18 that they're darkened in their understanding. These words ought to sound familiar to you this morning. If you think of Romans chapter 1, remember that great text, Romans 1, that great chapter, verse 21. Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Guys, this is why occult leader Shirley MacLaine could stand on a Malibu beach some years ago and lift her hands to heaven and proclaim, I am God. I am God. Because her heart has been darkened. The reality is, guys, the more a person suppresses truth, the less capable of discerning spiritual reality. Now, this is a great point for, to make an application here, ladies and gentlemen. Do you have lost loved ones? Maybe there's a husband or a wife that's lost. Maybe an older child who's gone, walked away from the things of God, and you're convinced that they live in the ways of this world and their hearts are darkened to truth. Maybe it's a neighbor that's lost. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's important that we pray. If we do anything, we should pray that the Holy Spirit would regenerate the minds and hearts of those around us who are lost. We must pray for the lost. And Paul goes on to say in the last part of verse 18 that they're not only separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This phrase, hardening of their hearts, is a medical term. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word porosis. It means hardness. It even carries the idea of paralysis. You you know anybody that's crippled by devastating arthritis? So much so to the point that their joints have calcified and they're unable to move much? Well, that's the idea that Paul expresses here, that people's hearts have become Hardened to truth. Their hearts have become, if you please, calcified to truth. Then he says in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. It's a road, guys. This road of lust and sensuality leads to utter destruction. They're on a road that they cannot turn from. And it leads to utter demise. I've got some bad news for you. Nemo's unexpected journey through the sewers doesn't lead to the ocean. It leads to ultimate death. And Paul, guys, I think here the idea that Paul is presenting here is that the ungodly have been fooled. They've been deceived. And thus, their lives have been callous to truth. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a few weeks ago, right after our troops liberated Baghdad and our, the news media was able to get into some of the, the uh, inner cities of, of this country. And they got into some of the hospitals and to show us some of the common sufferings of the Iraqi people. On a, one of these programs, I saw this child that they, they uh, interviewed the parents. And this young child was suffering from a, just a common skin rash on the face. Do you see that? And because they lacked just very basic medicines like Benadryl, this child had scratched and clawed her face until it was, she was unrecognizable. It was, a, it was a pitiful sight. Well, Guys, that's the implications. That's what Paul is trying to illustrate here. The process of going down this road that leads to utter destruction. And people cannot resist They're headed in the direction of destruction and they cannot turn back. They're walking into their own death. Now, guys, with that said, I I want us to take a few minutes and, and consider verses 17, 18 and 19 in the context of Ephesians. I've I've been studying Ephesians for several months now. And when I came to these three verses, I had to step back. And look at this. And I I had to ask the question, why would Paul include this right here in the middle of this great epistle? He has taken us to the heights of of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This, This great truth. And now all of a sudden he takes us back down to the very depths of human nature. And so why, guys? What's the answer? Why would Paul include this right here in this great treatise, The Christian Life? I think the answer comes in the next few verses. Verse 20. He said, you, we, however, did not come to know Christ that way. 
Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say at this point of regeneration, at the new birth, that we put off the old nature and we put on the new nature. And we come to verse 24 and he says to put on the new self. Here's the answer, I think. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I think those two words hold the key. We have been created anew. To live in righteousness and holiness. Ladies and gentlemen, you understand there is a difference between holiness and righteousness. They're closely related. But there is a difference. Holiness, guys, has to do more with our obligations to God. If you take the first half of the Ten Commandments. This is what holiness is. Our response and obligations to a holy God. He is holy, so we should be holy. So if you want to know if you're growing in holiness, you can ask these questions. Are you continually loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates? That's holiness. But righteousness, on the other hand, has more to do with our obligations to fellow human beings. And that would include the second half of the law. And I think that holds the key, guys. Our response to fellow human beings. So I want to wrap things up before we... we center our focus upon the sacrament this morning. Let me wrap things up with a a couple of applications. Guys, first of all, it's important that we who are now righteous and holy have a proper view of the world. Because people, people, by and large, are too optimistic about the human nature. The Bible's very clear. Man is utterly depraved. Our neighbors, our relatives that are lost and outside of Christ are hopelessly confused. Guys, you know John 3.16, that great text that most everyone in this room could quote. John 3.16 does not reflect how big the world is. John 3.16 reflects how bad the world is. And the marvel of God's grace is that this holy, just God would direct his love toward a world that deserves his curse. We must, we must recognize and have a true or a proper view of the condition of the world. Let me tell you why this is so important. A law, anytime there's a loss of the biblical view of the world, you'll always see Orthodox Christianity suffer. Church history proves this. Anytime we imagine the world or mankind to be better than he really is, then the necessity of preaching Christ in the cross is always diminished. And throughout church history, the result has been the social gospel. We leave, we we no longer see the necessity to teach the, the fallenness of man and the need of Christ in the cross. It's important, guys, that we have a proper view of the world. Secondly, it's important that we live in this world, but not become a part of it. Several years ago, I think I've mentioned this book before, but Dick Keyes wrote a book entitled Chameleon Christianity. And in that book, Dick Keyes says there are two extreme examples of the Christian life where both are unbiblical. One, he says, is the chameleon Christian. And that's the Christian who becomes so much like the world that no one can distinguish them as Christians. In fact, many people would be surprised to know that you are a Christian. That would be the chameleon Christian. He says the other extreme is the, it's what he called the musk ox syndrome. And that, that is Christians who live like the musk ox. They, they uh, create this defensive circle around them to protect their own and they live within their own subculture. 
And guys, that too is an unbiblical approach to the Christian life. The scriptures are very clear that by God's sovereign design, we as the church have been called to live in the world to represent Christ and the gospel. It is Christ in us in the world. And we are to live in this world, but not become a part of it. Now, let me let me finish up with three practical um, encouragements to you this morning as we seek to live our lives. One, guys, it has to do with the life that we live every day in the Christian life. And guys, these are three things that I've been I've been trying to include in my own life as I've considered this text. One is this. We ought to get to know our neighbors. Get to know your neighbors. You know, guys, research tells us that the majority of adult Christian converts that come to know Christ or return to the church do so after having been invited by a friend. Do you know your coworkers really well? Get to know your neighbors and your coworkers. Secondly, practice what I call plan neglect. And this is really hard for us, especially all of us that are so busy in the Christian life and all of our all of our social life is centered around Christian friends. But we ought to practice plan neglect. When uh, we were involved in the fire department and uh, over the years, uh, we got involved in things that we really didn't want to get involved in because we wanted to get out of our comfort zones. And we would go to parties. And I remember one Christmas party we went to when we came home. We were tempted to throw our clothes away because we, we smelled so terribly. And uh, we, we would go to these functions and we felt out of place. But guys, people needed, we needed to be around them and they needed to be around us. And many of these people over the years came to know Jesus Christ because we practiced planned neglect. I remember Carla got involved in the women's auxiliary. And she would come home telling me about things that were really out of her comfort zone. But it was good for us. And guys, I have to confess to you, since I've been in the ministry, I look at some of you out there in the what I call the real world, on the front lines, and I almost envy you because you have so many more opportunities out there. Everyday common occurrences that you face that are great opportunities to practice planned neglect. I have to work really hard because I'm surrounded, you know, by the staff and the church and, and, you know, these all these what we call religious things all week long. I have to work hard at practicing planned neglect, but it's good for us. And thirdly, the third application is this. Pray for the opportunity to share the gospel. I, I caution you. God will answer this prayer. I, I'm talking about praying for the opportunity, a, a, a meaningful opportunity to sit down with a friend and share the gospel. You know, in, in the right setting where you can really articulate your faith. Pray that God would give you that opportunity and he will answer your prayers. For guys, we are the church called to live in this world. To be light and salt to people who are blind to truth, who are darkened in their understanding, callous to the ways of life. We are the church. Father, we thank you for your truth this morning. And we pray that through the preaching of truth that we would be encouraged as your people to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.